Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, this psalm is heavy, uh, even bleak, and yet it's in your word. So that means you have something to say to us through it. So Lord, would you speak? Use me for your purposes. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 88's a doozy, isn't it? It's kind of, you probably felt the whiplash of all my companions have become darkness. Glory be to the Father, right? It's, uh, there's a screech in our mind, like a screeching halt in our mind as we, as we come and, and hear Psalm 88. If you look in the commentaries, almost in every single one of them, you're going to hear, you're going to read something like this. This is the saddest prayer in all the Bible. Uh, last week, we, re- we talked about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a lament similar to Psalm 88, but Psalm 22, as is often the case with laments, it has a happy ending, or at least some sort of final burst of confidence in the Lord, and yet Psalm 88 has has none of that. Psalm 88 fully expands and expresses what the psalmist says in verse 3, my soul is full of troubles. You know, imagine, imagine if you could just not be any sadder, not be any more um, weighed down, not be any more in pain, not be any more sick, not be any more bad. Your soul is completely full of troubles. This is a psalm for you. I think the reality is, statistically speaking, the reality is some of us are probably in this place. And as we talked about last week, we have a subconscious instinct to want to put on a happy face when we come into the house of the Lord. And yet God has put a psalm like Psalm 88 right there in the middle of the Bible so that people who are in this place have uh, language and um, imagery and a song, a prayer, a reading to put to what they're feeling. God has given us a lament. He's given, given the gift of lament to us so that when life is full of troubles, we have God sanctioned, God inspired words and prayers to apply to our hearts and to cry with which to cry out to him. And the, and the big idea this morning, if there is a big idea of a, of a psalm like this, is that it's sometimes it's okay to not be okay. As long as you're not okay in the presence of God. Sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Just bring your not okayness into the presence of God. That's what I think we're going to learn. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about lament. So as I said last week, Psalm 22, uh, our preaching text from last week, was a lament, but it, and it was a s- sort of typical lament. It had a long complaint about what was going on in the psalmist's life, and then it ended with a little, perhaps a little atypical for the psalms, a long expression of faith and praise and thanksgiving for God's work, not only in the psalmist's life, but in the future. Uh, we, we love a lament like that, Right? We love a tragedy that has a happy ending to it. Um, somebody wrote over 100 years ago about the, the, the um, preferences and habits of American playgoers, and they said from 8 to 10.30, Americans want to be harrowed, disturbed, shocked, full of sorrow, but from 10.30 to 11, they want to be given a happy ending. And I think we have that in the church sometimes. I remember one time, not in this church, but in a previous ministry, uh, 
our worship pastor had picked some songs that were more reflective, more meditative, not, uh, not rowdy, triumphant, yay God type of songs, but more reflective. And somebody who was a visitor came up after the service and, and nearly accosted our worship pastor and me because in his opinion, uh, worship songs should always be joyful. They should always be pumping us up. They should always be encouraging. They should always be, you know, getting us excited. And, and I didn't say it, but I, I would have said it if I could talk to him today. I would be like, well, what about Psalm 88? What about Psalm 88? Because here's the thing. This psalm is actually meant not just for an individual who's going through some agony, but this is supposed to be a corporate song, a corporate prayer. Look, if you're looking at in, uh, in the Bible, you'll see that there's a, a title, a superscription. I'm not talking about the title the ESV translators put in there. I'm talking about the title that begins a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's actually part of the Hebrew text of this psalm. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Le'anov, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. This song is actually written for the choirs of Israel that sing and lead worship at the tabernacle in the days of David. He is the one who established the sons of Korah, the, the different choirs that would lead the worship. And this, Haman, is one of the people that's named in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 as one of the sons of Korah. And so he wrote this song to be a song that the choir at the tabernacle of the Lord sang to give God praise and to cry out to him in times of hardship. So the superscription, the title, teaches us that lament isn't just for a person. It's not just for me in my prayer closet, but it's for all of us when we are corporately gathered together and we can cry out to the Lord. And there's some very practical benefits from lament, from crying out to the Lord, from expressing what's really going on in our life or what may be going on in one of our brothers and sister in Christ's life. One of the great benefits, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, uh, he, he pointed out that, that Freud's idea uh, beginning the, this, the, um, the process in counseling and psychotherapy where you express things, you, you say out loud how you're feeling, what you're experiencing, and, and uh, Brueggemann says he's, just, he's actually just plagiarizing from the Bible. <laughs> the Bible just already said that's what you should be doing before God. You should be crying out to him and telling him all the things that are going on in your life. And wh- why is that a benefit to us? Well, we know, like statistically, we know that it helps us to manage our emotions. It helps us to get a different perspective. It helps us to get it out. It helps us in some sort of not always definable way. It helps us to go on living and not fall completely into despair. And so God has given us a great gift by giving us psalms of lament. It helps us to deal with our emotions. There's a great benefit even to writing your own psalms. You know, I heard, I heard a really heavy story. I mean, you think Psalm 88 is bad. I heard the story of a, a Christian family that, that lost three sons in the course of seven years. And one of the things that the father began to do is write his own psalms. And some of the language in the Psalms is way darker than Psalm 88. Very heavy, but he's doing it in the presence of the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. God wants us to do that. And and another benefit of of something like lament is that even if I'm not going through that season of Psalm 88, even as as, uh, Mark was reading Psalm 88, I'm not thinking, oh man, this guy is reading my mail, right? Even if I'm not feeling that way, there's somebody probably in your circle that's feeling that way. 
There's somebody in your life, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor that is going through that. And, and entering into lament with them just stokes those flames of empathy and compassion and, and patience and long-suffering with people who are, who are going through a hard time. And it prepares us for the inevitable day when Psalm 88 will be the song we're singing when suffering comes. So lament, even though it makes us a little uncomfortable, it made me very self-conscious that I was preaching about Psalm 88 today. Even though that's true, it's actually a very good gift from God for us, not just individually, but also collectively. So that's the importance of lament. Now, as we look at Psalm 88, I think there's two main things that, that are driving the lament for the psalmist. The first one is the trouble of death, and the second one is the trouble of God. And we're going to talk about those in that order. First of all, the trouble of death. You can see, it's pretty obvious, the main theme of this psalm is death, right? Uh, you don't have to be a great expositor to notice that. This psalmist, you know, they say the Eskimos have 100 words for snow. Uh, this psalmist has like 100 words for death, <laughs> you know? You might have noticed in every, basically every um, couplet, every set of two lines, other than verse 1 and verse 2, in almost every one he refers to death. And he, he's very, it's very colorful language. He talks about um, Sheol, and he talk, which is the realm of the dead in the Hebrew mind. He, he talks about the pit. He talks about the grave, verse 5. He talks about the regions, dark and deep, in verse 6. You might say that verse 7, the, the image of the waters overwhelming him. He talks about the land of forgetfulness in verse 12. Abaddon, the area of destruction in verse 11. Also in verse 12, um, the darkness. Right? He, he just, it's like he's, he's painting with a thousand colors as long as he's talking about death. He's got all kinds of um, vocabulary, but also this deep preoccupation, this deep fear of death. He, uh, this psalm hits you, like, if you ever, have you ever watched a movie um, where the, the camera, the, the director has the camera stay on a scene, like a disturbing scene, it stays on that scene just a beat longer than it needs to? Because it's trying to, it's trying to like, turn the, twist the knife, so to speak. This, that's how this psalm hits you. It just keeps coming. And you just keep thinking, where's the verse that says, and yet I will praise you? And it just doesn't come. This psalmist is wrestling with the trouble of death. Particularly, if you look at verse 4, uh, he says, I'm a man who has no strength. Verses 8 and 9, he says, I'm shut in. And then in verse 15, he talks about being afflicted even from his youth. And so you get the impression of a person who's so physically uh, worn down, so physically afflicted that, that they're prevented from being able to do anything that they or others would think of as productive or useful. You know, my, I remember my mom always used to tell me, go find something productive to do. You know? It's like a, a, like a mantra in our, in our family. And I think in our culture, that's a, that's a mantra. Go find something productive to do. And, but Psalm, Psalm 88, this psalmist is experiencing a life where it, it ain't quite that easy. He's been worn down, grinded down by life and by illness. He cannot make much of his life. He cannot pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He, he shrewdly even asked God in verses 10 through 12, um, God, you, aren't you the God that works wonders? Aren't you the God who wants to be praised? Aren't you the God of steadfast love? Aren't you the God of righteousness and faithfulness? Well, how will I tell anyone about any of that if I'm in the grave? He feels like he's coming to the, 
to the, a pointless death at the end of a pointless life. You know, it's not a good death. He lived 100 years and he had 10 children and his inheritance and he passed it on and he glorified the Lord and he evangelized and he told people about Jesus and all of that. It's not a good death at the end of a good life. It's not, it's not even a noble death, dying heroically to save your, your brothers in arms or to rescue someone or to... Uh, die on behalf of another pe- person. It's a pointless death at the end of a pointless life. And yet, and yet, verse 1, verse 9, verse 13, he cries out to the Lord. He's wrestling with death. It's, it's okay to wrestle with this question, but he does it in the presence of the Lord. And now, this is an Old Testament reading. It's important for us to remember that, that the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole is a progressive revelation. We don't know on page one what we will find out by the end of the story. God is unfolding his revelation throughout history and through, through his working with his, with his people. And so the psalmist views death as the end, the very end, that there's nothing beyond that. He, he only knows what we know through Jesus. He only knows that in shadows and promises and hopes and long-off dreams He knows the first half of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't know the second half of Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so he is so preoccupied with death, he thinks it's a judgment from God. He feels God's wrath on him. He feels that he's going to be cut off. He feels like his life is pointless. And yet that superscription, that title, It's not pointless, is it? Because you and I, 3,000 years later, are still reading this psalm. It can still minister to us. This, This suffering, the words of this sufferer, continue to minister to us even to this day. And for thousands of years, it has strengthened God's people and given them words to express the darkest of times. He is uh, one of the sons of Korah, Haman the Ezraite, and people have been reading and singing him for millennia. So this idea that he, ends, he has a pointless death at the end of a pointless life, it's not the whole truth, is it? This week I read, uh, actually, a friend of mine gave me the book, The Killer Angels, and he's here in, in, the, in the congregation today. I'm going to give you your book back, finally. Um, I actually read it. And I love the book, The Killer Angels, but I I also love the story of how the book, The Killer Angels, came about. So The Killer Angels is a story about the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, And Michael Shara, the the author, uh, he first wrote this in, he began writing it in the 60s, and he finally was ready to publish it in the mid-70s. And the first 15 publishers that he went to rejected the book and said, nobody wants to read this. Nobody wants to read, it's right, it's Vietnam, nobody wants to read a story that glorifies war, it talks about the nobility and all that kind of stuff. Nobody wants that. Finally, somebody gave him a shot. They, they said they would publish it. And then about 18 months after it was published, he got a, a call from New York, and he said, your book has won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Now, normally when you win the Pulitzer Prize, your book skyrockets to the top of the New York Times bestseller, and you could expect to become famous and successful and wealthy. But none of that happened for Michael Shara. And he spent the rest of the 70s and the early 80s trying to convince somebody to make a movie out of his book, but his health was declining. He had been in a very bad motorcycle accident. He had uh, heart disease and had multiple heart attacks. And finally, in 1988, he died, thinking he was an utter failure. 
that he had left no legacy for his children. But you will know in 1992, the film Gettysburg came out, which was based on the Killer Angels. And within a few weeks, the Killer Angels shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And he sold over two and a half million copies to this day. He died believing he had failed, and yet there was a longer legacy that he couldn't see over the course of the coming years and decades. And his son, through the influence of his father, has also become a best-selling author. I'm sharing that story because sometimes we are so stuck in our moment that it doesn't occur to us that what we're going through could actually be working good over the course of years or decades or in God's hands in eternity. One commentator put it this way, talking about uh, Haman. He says, his existence was no mistake. There was a divine plan bigger than he knew and a place in it reserved most carefully for him. So he wrestles with the trouble of death, and then he wrestles with the trouble of God. I know that's a weird way to put it, kind of a weird thing to say, but I don't mean it in any sort of blasphemous way. I don't mean it in any sort of way that denies what the 39 Articles teaches, that there's one almighty God, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, with no body parts and passions, eternally existing in three persons. I'm not denying any of that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm saying he's wrestling with the knowledge of all that, that God is good, that God is almighty, that God knows everything, that God is right there in the midst of his suffering and struggle, and he's going through this horrible suffering and struggle. How can those two things be reconciled? He knows God is good. In verses 10 through 12, we already mentioned those questions that he asks. The questions reveal what he believes about God. He does believe God is a God of steadfast love. He does believe God works wonders. He does believe God is worthy of praise. He does believe God is a God of faithfulness and righteousness. That's the whole problem. None of that seems to be coming to pass in his own life. He believes God is good. And yet, from his perspective, God is uncontrollable, unruly even. Can I use the word wild? He doesn't seem to ever act in the way that you expect him to act. He acts how he wants to act. He does what he wants to do. In verses 6 through 8, notice the psalmist says to God, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me. You cause my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror. What do we do with this knowledge that God is good and yet this unruly uncontrollable God who refuses to act the way we expect and assume he will act. You can imagine Haman saying, Lord, you called me to your ministry. You wanted me part of, part of the choirs that sing in your tabernacle. I didn't think it was going to turn out like this. Maybe you felt that way when you became a Christian. Lord, I thought, I thought being a Christian was going to make things easier. You know, I thought I was just going to float through hard times. You can hear Elijah in our first Kings reading. You can hear Elijah saying that, right? I, even I only am left. Did you have to pick me, God? <laughs> you know, couldn't you pick somebody else? God is good, and yet God is unruly. He's uncontrollable. He's wild. He's sovereign. He gets to decide what he's going to do. You know, there's that, I'm sure it's so cliche. People, preachers use it all the time, but I'm still going to use it. At the end of the book, um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the book, 
uh, Lucy is speaking with Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan, and she asks Beaver, is he safe? Aslan's the God character, the Christ character. He says, she says, is he safe? And Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's the, that's the tension the psalmist is living in each and every single day. God's good, but apparently he's not safe in the way that I want him to be safe. Archbishop William Temple, uh, he said it this way. He says, often we get far enough in our Christian life to, pr- to know that we should prefil- prefer God's will to ours in principle. But we are not often close enough to him to avoid insisting upon our judgment of what his will ought to be. You catch that? We know we should prefer God's will, but we reserve the right to tell God what God's will ought to be. That's what the psalmist is wrestling with. God is good, and yet he's unruly by my, from my perspective. He's sovereign. So what do we do with this? I think there's two things, if we were to expand out in the Bible, there's two things that, that help us with this, this tension. First is that God is love. He is steadfast love. He is faithfulness. He is righteousness. He is worthy to be praised. He does work wonders. In fact, the Bible pictures God, uh, if I could paraphrase it, put an, an illustration on it, God pictures God in, as being so supremely good, so unbelievably good, that all the suffering and sorrow that we experience in this life when Jesus comes again will be like a drop of fresh water dropped into the Pacific Ocean. It will absolutely disappear and dissipate into God's goodness. The second thing I think we can do with this tension is that we have to recognize that God is so thoroughly good that he doesn't lose his nerve about working an eternal good in your life, even though it causes earthly pain. God never loses his nerve when he's working an eternal good even though it causes earthly pain. You know, with my kids, sometimes I lose my nerve. I'll be like, well, you're not allowed to go to the next whatever. You're not allowed to go to that dance. You're not allowed to go to that event. You're not allowed to go to that party. You're not allowed to go to that thing. And that, because of, you know, discipline and punishment or whatever it is. And you get on the eve of the thing and you go, oh, I'm making them miss out on something, right? You start to lose your nerve. You start to think, you know, maybe the, the lesson I thought they needed to learn is maybe not as important as the, the sorrow that they're going to feel about missing out on this time with their friends. I, that's a failure in me. That's a weakness in me. God doesn't have that weakness. He's so good that he keeps working for good through all of it, through all the sorrow, through all the pain, through all the suffering. He just keeps pushing to that eternal good, and he promises in our gospel reading never to lose any of us. This principle that God is so thoroughly good that he never loses his nerve, we can see it nowhere more clearly than at the cross. For God gave up his own son for us. And Jesus cried out in the garden, if there's any other way, Father, let, it, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he, God, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. He suffered immensely this earthly pain, this being cast out. He is the one more than anyone who can pray. Psalm 88, he's the one who was cut off and laid in the pit. He's the one whose companions abandoned him. He is the one who goes into the land of darkness and forgetfulness, and he did it for us. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus turns all those questions in verse 10 through 12 right on their head. The psalmist says, Lord, do you work wonders for the dead? And the gospel said, God does work wonders for the dead, for Christ is risen. So it's okay 
to not be okay in the presence of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of reading and understanding and interpreting and preaching and encouraging one another in it. Lord, would you strengthen our faith through this psalm? Would you help it, um, give, use it to give us words when we are facing those deep, dark, hard times? And Lord, stoke in us those fires of compassion and patience. And Lord, most of all, give us hope in Jesus, for you do work wonders even among the dead. We pray for this in his name. Amen. Amen.